Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of February 2022. We're just about three weeks away from spring equinox and gaining five minutes of daylight each day. It's a good time to get out and enjoy the increasing daylight and the the glimmers of spring to come. Some of the birds starting to move around, noticing some more gulls around and whales showing up and no doubt in anticipation of herring which is something to look forward to in the coming weeks. If you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. You can also find archives of past shows at sitkanature.org slash raven. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Courtney Hart, a visiting scientist and residence fellow at the Sitka Sound Science Center. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with her giving a brief introduction of herself and go on from there. My name is Courtney Hart, and I am a graduate student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and I'm in the fisheries department, which is divided between Fairbanks and Juneau, so I spend most of my time in Juneau. Um, I study clams, other types of shellfish like oysters, and then in particular, I'm interested in how harmful algal blooms in this region affect the harvest or the commercial processing of these clams. So I work with a whole variety of partners, divers, the Sika Tribe of Alaska, Department of Fish and Game, Department of Environmental Conservation, um, and then, yeah, the university. So it's been a really cool project for me because it's really applied and very collaborative. Nice. So you have had a chance to go various places in southeast Alaska and, and as part of your research? Yeah, I did. I So I first moved up to Juneau about four years ago. And actually, the first place I came was Sika, I think that spring. And because I met with the tribe and our partners there, we work with their toxin lab. And then I spent quite a bit of time down in Ketchikan and on the west coast of Prince of Wales. Most I mostly work with gooey duck and gooey duck divers. And the majority of gooey duck is harvested uh, just south of Ketchikan and then along the outside of Prince of Wales. So I've spent done my field work in those areas and been able to boat. Actually, we take our boat down there, the university boat. Uh, drive it down, takes about a whole day, and then spend about a month down there collecting samples and working with people. Mm. Yeah, I've had a chance to talk with folks from uh, the uh, CTOR lab, I guess they call mm-hmm. it, uh, the Sitka tribe. Um, and so they, and of course, they're monitoring harmful alcohol blooms for uh, subsistence harvest of clams yeah. and, and that. And so I didn't, I hadn't really heard about this in the context of gooey ducks, except I guess maybe I have heard that people have to, like the process for getting gooey ducks checked out because you don't want to sell toxic right. stuff, basically. Right. So there's a kind of an involved process for, for making sure your gooey ducks are saleable. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the one of the issues. Everyone around here at least knows that it, we're in a pretty remote area and roads aren't, don't, <laughs> we don't have very many of them. But before the fishery opens, it opens weekly for the divers, but before it opens, they have to sample and take a couple gooey duck from where they're planning on fishing. They send it up to Anchorage, Anchorage, where the Department of Environmental Conservation Lab is. Um, they'll do a toxicity screening, and essentially they'll give them a yay or nay. If it's a below 80 micrograms per 100 grams tissue, the saxitoxin, then they open the area, and if it's not, then they won't let them open. So they usually kind of somewhat randomly, but the divers themselves decide where they're going to test, and they don't always choose the right places. And so... You know, they may not be able to open an area if none of those batches end up being non-toxic. So once they've sent their sample in um, and they, the lab has tested them, they have about, I think it's, you know, 48 hours of a fishery. So they go to their spot, they harvest, 
each individual has limits and then they come back and then the fishery is live fishery. So the majority of gooey duck clams are exported live. And since they're live animals and you're exporting the whole thing, then every bit of that needs to be non-toxic. So that's why it's pretty strict. And then I work with the tribe because they have the ability to also test for PSP levels in shellfish. And so um, we, the divers, the couple of years that I did field work, would send me extra clams for my project. And actually, we sent them straight to Sitka. And they would dissect them and do the toxicity testing and then send everything back to me over in Juneau. Um, so it was kind of this wonderful relationship that we were able to utilize a local lab um, as opposed to the state lab, which I don't know if we would even be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I... Um Remember speaking with with them and just kind of being curious about the dynamics of of the presence of the toxin and uh, I, I can't remember if it was maybe it was Josh Harnett or uh, Chris Whitehead or mm-hmm. Esther Kennedy. I've uh, s- spoken with all of them um, that that uh, you know even just around a point it can have a very different levels of toxicity because it has to do with the currents and where the where the bloom is happening and where it happens to go and when the clams are happening to get it. Mm-hmm. And the, so the, the gooey ducks are like, they're big. They're big. I, I don't think I've ever actually seen one, but it just pictures and they, they, they look large, but they're, you know, bottom dwelling, you know, in the sediment kind mm-hmm. of filter feeding. Um, how, do, is there a sense of how, how variable, like in the, the, the um, toxin can be within gooey ducks over, over area? I mean, that you've just, asked the question that really started this project. We were trying to understand why there is variability in toxic in clam toxicity from harvest area to harvest area or even gooey duck bed to gooey duck bed because you know they they harvest within these areas but most of the divers go to where they know the gooey duck beds are. You know so the older divers go to the same places over and over again or return but but we suspected one of the reasons this project got started is because the phytoplankton, the, that single cell plant-like organism that's floating in the ocean that they eat, um, it exists as a vegetative state. So floating around, reproducing, you know, in the spring and summer when everything is blooming. And then they insist and become dormant. And those dormant cysts drop to the bottom and sit right on the sediment layer. And so like most clams, they live under the sediment. And then the top of their siphon is right there at what we call the flocculent layer, you know, right just at the water sediment interface. Um, and so we thought maybe that they actually, throughout the winter, were ingesting those cysts, so the dormant phase of the phytoplankton. So maybe that's what was making them, you know, hot or, or toxic. Um, that's one theory. The other theory, too, is that blooms, bloom dynamics is a black box. I mean, where blooms happen, how long they happen, what the, how widespread they are, that changes from year to year. And I know my first summer up here was 2018, and I'm from California, and I moved up here, and I thought, oh, my God, this Southeast Alaska is amazing. It was so hot the whole summer. Even 2019, I kind of was ready to be here forever. And then 2020 was a bit of a different story. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, pandemic on top of, I don't even think we had more than eight sunny days in Juneau for a while. So, so, um, and the bloom dynamics mimic that. We had really widespread toxicity in all types of shellfish. And you can see that in the CTOR data, um, and then things kind of calmed down in 2020 and even in 2021, it's been quite a bit cooler. And so I really think it has more to do with 
this shellfish and how they're exposed to blooms over time. Maybe you can have small blooms within small bays or along, you know, just the West Coast, not the East Coast of an island. Um, and that may affect the toxicity of clams. And then the last big kind of black box is how long a shellfish can actually retain the toxin. And every species is different. Uh, the blue mussels will tend to get toxic, but then they'll depurate. They'll clear it out really quickly. But clams, I mean, these clams are a couple pounds. They're, they live, they're long-lived, um, probably not doing a lot of digestion during the winter time. I mean, it's cold. The divers have told me it's always harder to see the clams in the winter than the spring because they're, they're up and active in the spring, but they're kind of hunkered down in the winter. And in general, I think it's starting to be understood that these gooey duck clams are really slow at depurating the toxin. So that's why some may remain toxic long into the winter, even though we don't have blooms anymore. So they, what what may be triggering the toxicity is a bloom that happened in May. Possibly. Or or sometime in the summer in a particular bay mm-hmm. or, or, or limited area. Uh, those then get, and oh, I guess, so that that. You know the spatial spatial aspect of it, kind of with you know my I have a little bit of a statistics background, so I always think, well, what's the variability here? Like, how much how much do you need to sample? And or it sounds like you know they have a, a process that that works for them, but how many how much do you need to sample? And 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 because I know the tribe here recommends sample from where you're going to plan to harvest, yes, like like right there. Uh, and and you know don't don't think about the next bay over because it's a shorter boat ride or something. But right where it is, and then you should be fine. But um, mm-hmm. within that bay, because everything within that little um, pocket of water is is likely fairly uniform. Yeah, yeah. I mean that is that's a huge that's a really good question. You know where the variability. I I I don't know. I mean when I studied oysters for my masters, I was looking at gene gene expression and I exposed all these oysters to p- different chemicals under different situations and some of them seemed to react and some of them didn't react at all and they're 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 really identical I mean these oysters were all you know grown in the exact same place and so I I don't know I kind of I don't like to anthropomorphize you know invertebrates too much but but each individual is different and what they decide to do whether I don't know if it's a decision, but what happens to them, you know, is it's hard to actually say. And I really think there's quite a bit of variability, not only within or among species, but within species too. And then you put on top of that the spatial aspect. If they're in a bay, if they're in an exposed coast, and then you look at southeast Alaska, I mean, you compare that to the California coastline. We just there are what's I mean, I, I can't remember how many miles of coastline there are. It's you know enough to go up and down California so many times. It's it's just so dynamic here. So it's really hard to study species. And then it's hard to study gooey duck. I mean, we pay for the gooey duck. They're pretty expensive. You can't just get, I mean, yes, I wish I could have gotten hundreds and hundreds of them, but <laughs> yeah, I also probably would still be in the lab right now. So there are limits to doing this kind of work, especially when you're working with divers, you know, our data is dependent on the fishery operating. So as opposed to an experiment, maybe you set up in a lab where you can control it really closely. So that's kind of another element of of confusion to it because you're teasing apart patterns, but you're also teasing apart patterns with patchy data. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, yeah, often challenge field field data is more realistic than lab data, but lab data is a lot easier to control. Absolutely. Uh, which is, of course, why it's less realistic. Uh, and it's, uh, I guess, I guess in the long run, you know, as you're, you're sort of looking at the broad arc of trying to understand situations and it's a mix of both that is, is helpful. Cause I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, are gooey ducks, uh, 
raised or, or kept in captivity alive at all, or do they? No, not. Do well? not well, so they are. They um, a lot of hatcheries. So down in Washington and in uh, British Columbia, there are hatcheries for gooey duck, and kind of they they farm them. So they'll they'll get an adult gooey duck, spawn them in their hatchery, and then um, let the juveniles grow out, and then they'll seed the beaches. But mm. they're throwing out these little. They must be the most adorable things in the world. These little baby gooey duck. Um, sometimes they put them into, you know, plastic PVC buried mm-hmm. pipes and with a little cover on top to protect them from predators. But I would love to do a project with actually exposing gooey duck to particular scenarios within a lab. And honestly, I think a hatchery would be to play, be the place to do that. The problem is it takes a really long time to grow up a gooey duck, longer yeah. than perhaps a graduate degree would allow. And then on top of that, if you if you were to try to go take wild gooey duck and bring them into a lab, I mean, those gooey duck live, they bury, they settle in the sediment, they bury down, and then they actually, their foot atrophies. They don't move once they're down there that much. And so once you remove it from its, you know, sand tunnel, three feet under the surface, how is it going to act? It's going to behave completely differently. And I don't think people have kept them alive, obviously alive long enough to spawn, but to actually do experiment, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that many people have tried yeah it would i mean it was just curiosity i guess i'm not that i'm gonna try and invest in, in no. a lab to do that but just yeah that would seem to be the way to get start to get a, some baseline sense of of how fast you know they might be processing the, the yeah. toxin out but um I, I suppose the other way is to like intensively sample in in locations uh, which has its own challenges especially uh, here in yeah, alaska yeah, where you know it's an eight-hour and, boat ride <laughs> right weather and access <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh, that's why a lot of people do experiments on juveniles you know you often read that in papers and people are like why are they studying juveniles well juveniles are easy because you can usually you know rear them and have them captive and they may not live to be an adult but they can it's easier to do experiments on them so so as part of your project, were you then also monitoring, you, you know, you mentioned that you looked at these uh, phytoplankton. Were you monitoring the harvest areas uh, throughout the the year or throughout the, the bloom season. season, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, I only go out there at the end of every summer to collect sediment. And I've done that three years in a row um, to look for that dormant phase. I did get samples of sediment from the divers throughout the fishery but again only certain areas open certain years are on rotation so it's not a consistent data set um, i do monitor phytoplankton in the juno area pretty regularly because i have another project with working with the oyster farmer in juno to monitor phytoplankton where her farm is because much like clam, oysters will also ingest um, they eat alexandrium the phytoplankton that causes psp and that can close down oyster farms for, you know, up two to three weeks if they have their samples, because they also have to test their samples before putting any product on the market. Um, so we have a pretty long data set in Juno. We sample once a month in the winter and then multiple times a month during the summer. And I'm kind of excited about that because it, it changes from year to year, not only the presence or absence of these harmful algal species, but also just the dominant species. When I first moved up here, it was Catoceros, which are these really beautiful, leggy, spiral phytoplankton. And then last year, it was all Skeletonema, which is also very beautiful, kind of leggy, but very different. Um, and there's someone up in our de- in the Marine Biology Department, uh, Gwen Hennen, who she knows a lot more. And I've been talking with her about 
you know, what does it mean for the food web? What different kind of species when they dominate? What are the upstream effects or downstream effects on the rest of the food web? But that, again, I think there are some long-term data sets, but it's pretty hard. It's, it's very tedious work, as we were talking about earlier, to do microscope identification manually. Um, there's some technology these days that's doing it with machine learning, but mm. grad students don't usually have access yeah. to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, uh, yeah, I guess I could imagine that, that um, if you, you could automate a process to, to get reasonable, reasonable enough. Uh, I, I spoke some, some time ago with uh, Katie Birch is her name. Uh, she is part of a project monitoring phytoplankton in Catchmack Bay. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and the same thing that you were mentioning there, she's, one of the things that was, I guess, surprising was how different, like all the time, all the species were there. It seemed like, uh, you know, pretty much it, it, mm-hmm. in small numbers, but the blooms were were very different and, and they weren't consistent. Like you, you'd think, oh, well, each year, this time of year, you know, or, or relative time of year, depending on the, whether it's a cold or warm season, you know, you get a bloom of this or that or the other. And over the, over the several, I think by that time they'd been doing it, you know, a handful of years anyway, it just like, there was no real pattern. Other than things bloom in the summertime when there's lots of light and it's warmer, yeah, <laughs> and not in the winter, uh, but the actual species composition varied a lot from year to year, and for for reasons that were not at all obvious. Uh, so I know, and that's kind of the that's just the big catch with a lot of scientific monitoring and data is that you can you can make these broad statements. Okay, phytoplankton blooms start usually around April and you know, max out in May and June. But then there's about 48 caveats to that, you know, well, it's okay, sometimes they do, but sometimes it changes. And sometimes this species there and, uh, and then the, maybe there's an oil spill and that changed. I mean, like, there's just not, I mean, as you know, as a naturalist, like, there's just not, it's not black and white, nothing ever happens the same every year, you can distill it down to a general trend. But then you need to have about 100 asterisks in there. Yeah, well, and that's one thing that I've I, I realized, I think, first with weather here. I grew up here, and, and my sense of what normal for winters or, or weather was. At, at first, I, and, and it, it happened most clearly, I was, I was speaking with somebody who grew up here in, it would have been in the 50s when, when he was young. And uh, we had a, a coldish winter, you know, some couple, 15 years ago now, maybe. And he's like, yeah, this is back to back to what I remember as normal. <laughs> and, mm. and I was like, oh, it's a lot colder than I think of as normal. And I realized that the 80s were a relatively mild winters and, and the 50s, I think, if, if I'm remembering correct, they were relatively harsher. And there's, you know, general broader trends, but there's so much variability yes. over year to year and even over, you know, decadal kind of variability. And I was like, oh, so our sense of normal is pegged, like if you grow up in a place, your sense of normal is probably pegged from the time you're maybe like, eight, nine, yes, ten, yeah. to, to sort of mid-teens or some. So it's a relatively small period of time that normal is. Uh, if you move to a place and it's probably the first couple of years you're there, that's what sort of uh, anchors you at, at normal. And both of those are small periods of time. And so it's, it's like with birds, with, with animals of any sort, it's like what's the normal range of variability? And answering that question is difficult to do without good data over time. Over time, yeah, yeah, and um, and otherwise we kind of re- rely on our impressions and so forth. And yeah, it's just, we rely on it that sense of it so much, and it's it's just difficult to know because it's 
in the bigger scheme of things, like it's not that unusual. You have extreme events all the time somewhere, you know, nothing is ever average. And, you know, we like to connect the dots Uh, for better and worse. We we do. We do. Yeah. And so it's an, it's an interesting set of conversations to have to just try and to tease it apart, you know, okay, what's, what's noise, what signal, uh, what can we do? And yeah, so it's interesting that you're looking at the, the phytoplankton there in Juno and noticing these, because, uh, you know, you can imagine my brain automatically starts to go, okay, well, glacial runoff, like nutrients, Absolutely. all these different reasons that there could be. Mm-hmm. But it's like, man, measuring all of those and then trying to tease out uh, tease out that data over over a, a multi, multi-year multi data set would be a project probably for somebody more ambitious than me. And I mean, that's one thing I've learned during my graduate degree is that distilling your information down to describe a mechanism to be able to actually answer the question, why is this happening is, is so difficult. I mean, we kind of get to it more in medical science because we have so much effort put into understanding how proteins are shaped and genes work. But in nature, answering the question, well, why did that happen? I mean, it's really, really hard to do. I will say, though, the if we keep setting records every single year in certain things, year after right, year after year, yeah. then I'm going to start being yeah. a little bit more worried. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, there definitely seem to be trends. It's just it's uh, so much noise around the trends yeah. that sometimes I wonder, like, yeah, the why question. And it's also interesting, I think, sometimes it's like the question that you, you said you had about well, what's the implications of this? So mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know why the plankton are blooming this way one year versus the other, but what are the implications of the different species composition? Because those are a base of, of uh, an important, uh, probably the main base of the marine food system, I suppose, uh, zooplankton and and, mm-hmm. and on up there uh, feeding on these things. And if the, like I remember, um, I don't remember if it was phytoplankton, but but definitely with like zooplankton, some things have better oil essentially yes, than others. Like and, nutritional value. Yeah, and so the energy density of these, and maybe it was actually for phytoplankton. Maybe this was part of the conversation um, about the Kachemak Bay monitoring that they're looking at. But but some species have much higher quality energy essentially, which is necessary for like the large mammals like whales for sure. But everything you mm-hmm. know, the fish in and between. everything in between as well. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty big theory about what's affecting salmon and how the we have these warm really warm years like the blob in the pacific ocean north pacific ocean and then that that affects the f- composition of phytoplankton which in turn may affect the f- uh, composition of zooplankton and so on up and up and up and then then in the end you kind of have a breakdown somewhere in that food web so so a species that we as humans rely on and, you know, care about more. I mean, no one's out there eating phytoplankton, but we are eating salmon a lot and some communities really rely on it. And so, I mean, what if the problem started with warm water and phytoplankton and it has this cascading effects throughout the food web? And I know that there actually are, even in in with toxins, there's a group right now with a large NSF grant trying to understand how toxins, including saxitoxin, which causes paralytic shellfish poisoning, how that moves through the food web. Is that responsible for some of these larger seabird die-offs that you see up north? Um, how is it affecting whales? Or are they found in the tissue of walruses and then fish too? So there's a lot of work going into to studying the food web, but that becomes a, a massive research project that depends on getting samples from all over, you know, Alaska and the oceans that surround it, which is quite a feat. Yeah, yeah. It, the logistics of that become daunting. <laughs> well, the the toxins, yeah, the, the phytoplankton, and if I'm remembering correctly, they don't always 
produce the toxin? Like some some of them, sometimes they have it strongly and other times they don't? Yeah. I th- so it's my understanding with Alexandrium, which produces saxitoxin, is that it's pretty ubiquitous. It's being, these particular phytoplankton, they never dominate the bloom. So you're never going to see a bloom of just all f- Alexandrium. But when they're there in high enough numbers, there is toxin. But one of the other species that's a harmful algal bloom species is Pseudonychia, Mm. Um, and those are kind of long pencil-like structures that they chain up with each other, and they produce domoic acid. And domoic acid has been implicated in um, having huge effects on the crab fishery in Oregon and Washington and California, and also affecting sea lions quite drastically. And that particular species, I mean, there's hundreds of species of pseudonychia, like we were talking about earlier. I, I couldn't identify them. Um, and I look at a microscope all the time, but not all species produce that toxin. And the ones that do don't always produce that toxin. And I know some people are looking into what, what environmental, you know, suite of parameters causes them to produce toxin. So it, but again, I mean, how, how do you study that? They're so hard to even yeah. identify in the, in the first place. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, hearing about, I think it was bacteria or some, some, some very small organism that, that. Uh, behaved in a density dependent way. Um, essentially, mm-hmm. the more of it there was, then then some trigger happened, and then they started behaving differently. Like like the the things that they produced or the way that they you know behave is kind of maybe not the best word. I don't know, but that, that <laughs> they were showing up in a different fashion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when densities increased versus when they were low, uh, and there were I mean good evolutionary biology reason reasonings you know justifications for why that would make sense but yeah it just it just adds another layer of complication like if some of these things are when they're dense in the water column are are showing doing different things than when they're sparse yeah Uh, yeah and i think it's relative to my research too i mean i don't think i'm going to answer the question why is this gooey duck going to be toxic and when tell me that you know at this latitude and this longitude but i think what is valuable in some of the research we're doing is that we may be able to tease out some trends okay these years based on the currents and the increase in sea surface temperature overall then then perhaps we're going to have larger bloom events and then more deposition of these cysts that i was speaking of earlier and then that's going to increase toxicity and we may see that for a couple of years. Again, I'm not going to be able to say don't harvest in that area in October. That's not going to happen. But I think for the fishery managers and the participants to have that sort of background knowledge so they know what they're getting into, they won't be so shocked at the end of the season when there's still tons of allowable harvest that they've been able to harvest because they weren't able to figure out where to go. I think what we as scientists can really do is provide kind of a a better understanding of the environment so that fisheries managers know what to expect and people know what to expect. Because it's when you're caught off guard by a lack of something or an infestation of something that really kind of seems to cause issues within at least our human society. Hmm. Well, so are they actually, the gooey ducks, eating those cysts? I mean, are the, is that, or, so, and do the cysts have the toxin in them still or... Oh, I mean, yeah, these, you're just, you're really prompting me. These are literally the exact same questions that we're asking. Um, I did, so all, I got a lot of gooey duck from the divers during a couple seasons, and I did find cysts inside the gut. Um, but I think I had about 200 clams, and um, we dissected. Actually, I should give credit to 
Carrie Lamphier, who used to work at the tribe, because she dissected. She cut up the gut ball, which if you've seen a gooey gut ball, it's like the size of a new potato, and it's not a pretty thing. It gets really slimy. But she cut it up, scraped out everything on the inside, and then sent me essentially like a urine cup full of gooey duck innards. And then I um, I physically went through it and sieved it and looked for cysts. And so I found cysts in some of that material, but it it didn't – those four clams out of 200 were by no means more toxic than the other clams. In fact, that year a lot of the clams were pretty toxic. And so, yes, I think they can ingest the cyst. Does that cause them to be toxic? I'm not – I'm not – I can't say conclusively, and I don't really think so. Um, and then I do want to find out how toxic, toxic the cysts are. Some people believe they're way more toxic than the actual vegetative cell. Um, but the technology it takes to get, you have to pick out manually these microscopic cysts from sediment or what have you, and then send them through a HPLC, and I'm not even going to remember what that means. Um but essentially, it's, I think it's liquid chromatography. So you're sending, you're dividing it up into columns, you're using chemicals to, to then tease out the toxins and quantify it. And I sent my cysts to Woods Hole Institute, and they're hopefully going to be able to tell me one day what's in them. But that's not technology that I have and I'm able to do. Hmm. Well, I guess the other thing that occurs to me that might be a possibility with sampling and seeing the, the degree of cysts, although I don't know how it correlates, like is a high cyst load in the sediment correlative to a a high bloom, you, you know, concentration earlier in the year? Or I mean, like if they're persisting in the sediment for years, maybe that doesn't actually work. I, you know, I'm yeah, they can, they can that. persist in the sediment for years and still be viable for mm-hmm. blooming. I definitely found some hot spots. So I looked at sediment and counted cysts and sediments from all on the west coast of Prince of Wales and a lot of the harvest areas around Ketchikan. And even here in Sitka, uh, there's a couple harvest areas too. But I found areas where there were upwards of 5,000 cysts per cubic centimeter. So that's that's a lot. Um, a lot of other areas I found 0, 1, 2, 3, so not that many. Um, but I didn't find that those particular areas – the Guida harvest areas that had a lot of cysts were necessarily more toxic more often than other areas. Um, so right now I'm starting to look into kind of general currents um, in fjord systems like we're here in Southeast Alaska. We have these somewhat dominant, you know, currents, but we're also have a lot of tidal driven currents. And so I've been starting to think more about, okay, maybe there's this hot spot area where there's tons of cysts and that may be where blooms are generated, but perhaps clams and shellfish that are upstream or downstream of that are the ones that are dealing with the after effects of the of the bloom you know it starts in one area but it actually gets transported somewhere else um and i've spoken to the divers and they say you know they can go down one day and it looks like a underwater prairie and they can go down and dive the next day and it looks like you know there's sand dunes so the areas where they dive can get turned over so rapidly because of storms tidal currents mm. i mean a couple of times i remember trying to sample in a the Cleavac Narrows, which is over on the Prince of Wales. And I couldn't even, I mean, there were whirlpools. I couldn't get the boat to stay in one space to send down my, my sediment sampler. And I asked the diver, he's like, oh, yeah, we dive there all the time. I mean, the conditions that they deal with underwater is maybe not something I would <laughs> really. <laughs> I went diving with them once, and it, it's pretty cool what they do, but it is hard work underwater. They're underwater for a long time, and um, it's really impressive. Well, it is, yeah. So I'm, I'm just imagining, like, so a cubic centimeter of 
but it's, that's not very much. And 5,000, did you like literally count 5,000 or is it just like a, you take a sample of that and then extrapolate? Yeah, I, I take, um, so I, I process all the sediment and I, I uh, size fractionate. So I get rid of all the big rocks and all the little tiny stuff and I get it down to about the size that the cyst is, kind of a range. Um, and then I, I fix it with um, a fixative so that everything remains intact and doesn't decompose because they're alive technically. Um, and then I stain them with this dye and then I can look at it under a fluorescent light. And I, well, I homogenize my little beaker of sediment kind of slurry and I suck up a milliliter and put it into a, a slide. And then I go back and forth under a fluorescent light in a dark room counting what just look like little tiny fluorescent jelly beans. Hmm. Um, and it's sometimes you see a lot of them and then I mean, we see a lot. It takes forever. But yeah, most of my samples, I was, you know, less than 100. But yeah, there was, I, I only count a milliliter. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, again, I, I mean, I'd still I be like, there. Yeah, that's why it's like literally counting through that. I just imagine the, the, the yeah, the, the challenge. Tedious. Yeah, tedious, <laughs> tedious to put it lightly, um, uh, aspect of, of, of that. And so, yeah, I figured that was probably some sampling uh, approach to to doing that. Well, and I'm working, I'm collaborating with another group out of Washington State at University of Washington Tacoma, and they're looking at developing, um, actually using PCR, much like what we use for um, the COVID-19 test, to like, to use genetic testing to actually count. Mm. So we're working, like I've sent them samples of my sediment because um, we have no numbers of cysts in our sediment. We, we count them and then they're looking at using qPCR to quantitate um, that way instead. So it would take out this really tedious, you know, fixative and counting. And we don't necessarily do it here, but in the Gulf of Maine, where they have a lot of similar issues with shellfish farms and paralytic shellfish poisoning, um, they have a forecasting system. It's a much different coastline, um, and they've been able to map the currents pretty well that they think that if they understand where a majority of cysts are, they can really start predicting where there's going to be shellfish toxicity and what parts of the shores. But they rely on collecting sediment about, you know, in the fall or the winter and then getting those projections out right away. And so the counting takes a long time. But with this QPCR method, perhaps we could do it a lot faster. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that you could actually quantify, you know, how much uh, based on the based on the DNA and, and stuff that's in a sample. Yeah, I mean, you just what you do is you have a, a genetic primer that only targets the yeah. one thing you're looking for. And then you amplify it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it gives you kind of a relative quantity. But that's really what you want. Yeah, that's what I was was less clear on is like, yeah, that, so it's there. But but I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't realize that they could they could basically using presumably using samples like yours where you have a, a benchmark of, of known. Yes. Then you can you can essentially uh, calibrate it. Yeah, exactly. With, you know, physical counts and then QPCR. Yeah. So they're working on that project right now. Interesting. Yeah, they're able to do so much stuff with DNA these days. And it seems like they're just getting started on all the different. It's overwhelming. That, it's yeah. really impressive. But it's. It's a really strong tool, but it, like every tool, it needs to be refined, you know, for whatever use it is being used for. And that and that sort of, you know, quality control takes a long time to really hone in. Yeah, yeah. It's inter- interesting work. I, the, the eDNA stuff that I've heard about, they're like, oh, yeah, we just we can sample the water from where a, a whale dives. And, and I'm like, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, my lab mate's using eDNA to look at fish assemblages in coast, near shore coastal habitats. And we were just talking about it the other day and... Uh, she was getting some of her results back, but they do a lot of sampling from a boat. And um, so 
that there was a lot of a lot of dog and a lot of human in the oh, sample. Wow. I mean, yeah. which of course is expected because you you're in the yeah. field, but. Yeah, our advisor's dog is named Zena, so there was a lot of Zena in the samples. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating just to think about how much stuff is happening. You know, just even back to the the sediment uh, or the um, the cysts, and and it's like, well, like my initial thought was, well, of course they just settled out there, and then I, then you were talking about the currents. I was like, well, actually, they could have settled out most anywhere. That could just be a collection trap, essentially, where where exactly. they're coming in from all over the place, and they happen to. That happens to be a place that that the sort of sediment that they hang out in tends to collect in in the sort of current right. conditions, and of course, then that's going to depend on the weather of the particular year. The tide because the tides vary, but you know some years are stronger, weaker tides. The atmosphere makes that difference with all of that. So then it's like all of those things going into it, and, and yeah. um, you know, or the timing of storms of plus tides. Right, right, yeah, and and it's like so. What are the little pockets that, uh, and then and then. Add into that the fact that the cysts might persist over over years potentially. Uh, and yeah, they're definitely viable over years. I think someone down in Washington um, did, took sediment cores and found cysts at different layers and was able to age those layers. And she extracted a cyst that was in a layer that was over 50 years old and then was able to germinate it oh, wow. into a cell. But um, I've also found – so I was able to return to a couple places three years in a row – and while I think there was a huge deposition event after 2018, after we had such widespread blooms, um, but the, three years in a row, I've seen a pretty big decrease in the number of cysts. So that's kind of what got me thinking more, okay, maybe there's something more weather or climate related that causes these cyclical events. And so, you know, like I would love to be able to say to managers, and again, I'm just saying this, this is not necessarily true, that, okay, on years when we have these big warm weather blob events in the, you know, North Pacific, you know, one and two and three years later, you may have a lot of, a lot more toxicity because our blooms are going to be different. Maybe check, maybe monitor for blooms. I mean, we count a lot on the CTOR data. They, they do phytoplankton monitoring a little bit down in that area. But maybe if we knew more about that, then you'd, you know, okay, it's going to be a couple bad years, but then if we have cold, you know persistent cold weather, then we'll be back on track again. Because they were even harvesting in 2020 in the middle of the summer, and no problem. Yeah. yeah, I mean the clams were toxic, but they weren't toxic the whole time. They found a lot of mm. areas that weren't, and it was way colder. And one of the reasons they were harvesting is because they got shut down 2020, January, February, March, which is a big time to fish because China's pretty much closed all of its imports. Mm. So. Right, I guess if you're shipping them live, you need to be able to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's yeah, fascinating, fascinating world of, of undersea. And you know, the problem is we we don't breathe so well underwater. Um, no, <laughs> it makes it. I mean, it's already difficult enough on land to tease out some of these questions, but yeah. and uh, have the the added blanket of the water overhead to. Uh, make that more challenging but you it sounds like you get a chance i mean you dive so you get a chance to spend some time in the in the in the water just just for fun uh yeah definitely i just dove this morning i was hanging out with the uas dive semester class they were actually doing their rescue day out at uh near star gavin beach but it's pretty fun i mean there were whales swimming 200 yards away my rescue day when i took the class actually up in catch day was snowing there were two foot rollers coming in it was a mess but today it was beautiful and there was whales breaching but yeah, I do dive. I really, I I dove. I learned to dive when I was in high school. I thought I would be a diver, but it took me about 15 years until I moved up here. And I only started really diving when I moved up here. So I've never dove in warm water before. I've only ever dove in a dry suit in Alaska. But there are so many cool things underwater. I mean, even today, 
the beach. There really wasn't much going on, but I saw these beautiful nudibranchs, large ones with lots of frills all over them, scallops. There's tons of sea cucumbers down there right now. All these really tiny little flatfish that are, you know, it's really, I think that's one thing as I get older, I'm starting to really appreciate that maybe you as a naturalist have always appreciated is just sitting and watching not really moving very much, but being still and letting things happen around you. I've been always moving so fast in my life, but just sitting underwater for five minutes, it's amazing what you will see in really what looks like a barren, you know, Mm. mud bed. Yeah, I mean, animals are uh, good at hiding, (laughs) basically, is what it boils down to, I think. And uh, we're good at, uh, especially if you kind of learn to, to look like not, so focused, but just sort of let your eyes relax and sort of see the visual field. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, especially the peripheral vision is really sensitive to movement. So mm-hmm. if you can just sit there for a moment, like there's only so long, a lot of them will stay still. But as long as they're staying still, it's like good luck. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're like really hard to see. Totally. Uh, uh, even with a picture, you know, there, there's um, somebody, uh, the marine detective, uh, Jackie Hildering, she has a Find the Fish Friday thing. I don't know if you've ever seen I've that. I've seen her website, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's kind of like, you know, you have a picture so you can study it, but just like trying to trying to find the fish in there sometimes is, is pretty pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you're there and they're moving, like as soon as they move, then, then you know, you can see them. Uh, so it is, you know, I, I haven't tried it underwater, but I imagine it's similar. But insects and, and small creatures, uh, you know, sitting, or even sometimes large creatures, deer blend in surprisingly well. And then if you sit and watch sometimes and they, they move and you're like, how did that? Yeah. <laughs> how did that piece of forest move? Yeah, uh, I would love to dive out in the Aleutian Islands. That's kind of my, I don't, I'm not a bucket list person. Um, I hope to see a lot of Alaska, but I would love to go out to the Aleutian Islands and get underwater. It, just I've seen pictures of it. I think Joel, who runs the dive program here, he's been out there, and because he used to be a grad student at UAF as well. And I just, it's just the thing. I mean, what do they say? We know more about Mars than under yeah, than the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So like that. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty magical to go there. And there's a really great dive community in Southeast Alaska. I mean, it's not massive, but people people are hardy that dive up here. I mean, it's cold and it's dark, so it's you get a lot of really adventurous people and i've seen some great photography we do a annual underwater pumpkin carving dive in in october you know just to get people to come under and it's great i mean even then i carving pumpkins and something will catch you at the corner of your eye well i suppose the best time of year is unfortunately the coldest time of year and darkest time of year in terms of water clarity Uh, (laughs) yeah uh, those things are all all related but i've i've heard you have folks that snorkel and I've tried snorkeling a couple times and, and would like to try it more, but uh, kind of this time of year where our daylight's coming back, but it's still a little early for the blooms to really start happening mm-hmm. can be a good time to, uh, to be able to see stuff. You Definitely. Know, Clarity is great right now. Yeah. And uh, so much color and, and variety of, of form, you know, the algaes, the seaweeds and the, and the nudibranchs are especially fancy, but like nudibranchs. some of the fishes are pretty fancy too. The fish are even coral and algae is beautiful underwater. I mean, you get this branching coral and algae that you don't see as much always in the inner tidal, but it's not that deep. And I should say, I don't, I don't dive very deep. I dive 30, 40 feet. I'm, I'm actually still pretty scared a lot when I go underwater. I'm comfortable in that range, but once it gets dark and really cold, I'm, I don't, I'm not super comfortable. So I like diving in the shallower area where you could just snorkel with weights, but I mean, it's, Again, it's nice to be able to stop and be calm for a minute, and I can't hold my breath that well. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there's some folks I, I talk to that, that snorkel slash free dive, you know, some some mix of both. And 
I haven't asked them how long their breath hold is, but uh, yeah, sitting for five minutes just seems untenable <laughs> by the time you by the time you have to get down there and back up again. So the um, the advantage of having the dive tank to be able to to be down there for a while mm-hmm. and just and look and and sit and see. There's somebody that's on iNaturalist that lived in Ketchikan for a while. I think she works for Fishing Game. I don't know her actual name. I just know her um, <laughs> her, her iNaturalist handle. Uh, and I think it's moved to Juno, but did a lot. Has done a lot of diving. Posted a lot of pictures from from diving. Oh, um, I don't know who she is, but I do. She's just started working with the dive program oh, okay. at in in Juno. Yeah, she has posted lots of nudibranchs and fish and all sorts of stuff from diving. And you know, Southern I downloaded iNaturalist. I guess I should probably open it one of these days. Oh, well, that's <laughs> fun. You can use it on on the internet. I mean, I do a lot of it on the internet, but also just on my phone. So if you have pictures of stuff, you can upload it through the website. You don't have to use your phone. Oh, okay. That's but good if know. you're like out and about, I mean, you won't be using your phone underwater, but um, presumably, but the uh, if you're out and about and you're just like, oh, there's a plant and you could take a picture of it and, and do it right in the app. So it's pretty easy that way. But yeah, if you have pictures of stuff that you've uh, taken while underwater and mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, it's great. It's it's fun for me to just see what's around because that's, that's a habitat that I do not spend any time in. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, it's been interesting to yeah, get a sense of that and, and be like, well, maybe maybe I could learn to dive. <laughs> well, and I think the coolest thing I've ever seen, I wasn't even diving, but I'm sure. Have you, do you know what a spiny lump sucker is? Those cute little round fish. Yeah. They're they're kind of, they're very charismatic, but and they're not very big. And I've had friends see them diving, but I was out with the Central Council of Clinkett and Haida tribes doing some uh, monitoring with them for shellfish. And we were just tooling around in a rocky intertidal wasn't even that low of a tide and we had lights out because it was nighttime and uh my friend jamie shone a light on a, a clam shell that was white turned upside down there was water in it and she found a little lump sucker and it was no bigger than a pea oh, wow. swimming around and it was the tiniest cutest i mean i want a, a miniature aquarium one day it would be perfect this little tiny lump sucker you would not imagine you would ever see that where we saw it. But again, it was just kind of like shining a light and just stopping for a second and then noticing a little bit of movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny. Sometimes I'm not sure. I, th- I suspect it's a combination that some things are just more active at night. Um, that's when they're active. And True. so it's easier to find them. Um, and part of it's that my focus is different because, because it's like you have the headlamp and you're not seeing anything yeah. else. And so... So, but, but between the two of those things, it, it often seems to the case that there are things that I find in the winter uh, when our tides are at night, mm-hmm. you know, it depends on where you're at, but mm-hmm. in Southeast Alaska, I'm pretty sure yeah. throughout the, the low tides, the lowest tides in the winter are in the evenings when it's dark and then in the mornings in the starting in the spring. So actually we're, we're right about the time to sh- the shift happens at equinox. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, it, it, but it is interesting. People find different stuff, it seems like, or maybe more easily find some things at night in the winter than, I mean, they're still there in the summer, but you just don't see them as easily. I don't yeah. Know, but. I mean, and even turning over a rock or scooping up a, a shovel full of mud, it's really fascinating what you'll find. I know in the springtime, right when we have that shift, when tides are in the morning, you start going out and turning over rocks and a lot of snails are are laying their egg cases. Mm, yeah. It's like an Easter egg hunt, essentially, right around Easter usually. And and they're bright colors, and they're these really beautiful patterns. And that, I mean, that's something that I saw as a when I was younger. I mean, I got interested in, in science going intertitling in high school as part of a monitoring project. But I wasn't really 
it always made me nervous to turn rocks over. I always thought someone would come out and bite me. But, you know, as I get, as I know more about what's living in their title, I kind of know what to expect. I mean, we find baby king crab all the time in the oh, spring. Wow. And I mean, that is a crowd pleaser for anyone. A small, I think I just like small invertebrates because they're so cute. But baby king crab, they, we, you find them all over in, on Douglas Island in the springtime. Wow. Yeah, I've seen king crab relatives, but never king crab themselves. Um, oh, they're they're kind of scary underwater. I dove for yeah. them last year, and they're you big. Just, you dive in. My friend Jared just picks it up and just carries it around the whole yeah. time, and then we ate it. But one time I was diving, and crabs. I mean, they gather up. Oftentimes, they form these large balls. Not always sure why, but um, sometimes you, you get crab rodeos. And I saw one in Amalga Harbor. We were diving down and. You kind of start realizing as you get down there that that's not the ground. That's just a ton of king crab. And we got close enough and they all kind of rise up on their legs and then just start running away. So you saw like 80 king crab running underwater. And it's, you know, when you're outnumbered by invertebrate species, sometimes it feels a little unsettling, but it was really amazing to see. I think some people call that sort of thing nightmare fuel. Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, just the, um, just the, the, being overrun by you oh know, yeah, it's kind of that that sense of you I can know, see the heebie-jeebies feeling, a little yeah, bit, a little bit. Yeah, it is kind of wild. I have been pinched by crabs a couple of times. It it, it definitely can hurt. I've never been bitten by anything. I guess although maybe uh, you know poked by spines of of fish sometimes. But uh, yeah, it is an interesting you know mess of stuff going on in the intertidal, and you know that's. Seeing it even in shallow water, and this is one of the reasons I, I thought it would be fun to snorkel is, you know, hearing from my brother's experience of snorkeling is when you go at the beach at low tide, you know, everything's just sort of hunkered down trying to make it until life comes back, you know, when the water comes up again. Uh, and so even in even a couple of three feet of water where they're all like, you know, you bump your knees on the bottom when you're when you're in the water, but they're all much happier. And so you right. have a chance to, and even with the snorkel, you know, and you're saying you don't dive very deep. So that's a little bit, you get more stuff down, down lower. I'm sure that doesn't yeah, yeah. get into the shallows, but even in the shallows, the stuff that uh, lives there is much happier when the water's up over it than, than when you can find it. <laughs> find yeah. It otherwise. I've done a ton of snorkeling in warm water, just when I studied abroad in, in certain instances, but I've never dove in warm water mm. and I'm actually going to Cozumel later this year to dive for the first time. And honestly, the thing I'm most excited about is not putting on yeah, 65 pounds yeah. of gear. I mean, it's just going to be a wetsuit or a skin suit or, you know, but I'm, I'm pretty curious because again, you can see so much snorkeling in that first 10, 15 feet of water, but then you do get deeper down and it, it kind of just gets a little bit weirder and weirder the deeper you go and thinking about how, organisms then start adapting because it's a whole different pressure system down there and and i mean i don't think i'll ever well i know i'll never get down there but those hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean where they have these massive tube worms and big clams and big lobster crab looking like things like i just think that is that is so fascinating that that exists in that environment um and then you know we shine lights on it it looks beautiful it doesn't see light ever but it's really it is really cool to think about, you know, how things adapt as they have evolved to live in these environments. And I mean, things live, I mean, there's something living in almost every environment, right? Even, even in like really hot water. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, like, big, the, uh, the, 
pools in Yellowstone have yeah. the different kind of bacteria, archaea, I guess, that live in some of those. And yeah. the extremophiles, I think they call extremophiles, them. Extremophiles, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's pretty wild. Um, the the deep sea, you can find the videos on YouTube, you know, where they're, they're recordings of the live broadcast. I guess they were actually live broadcasts of the, you know, the, the scientist commentators as they have these deep sea um, submersibles right. that, are, that are like trolling around and usually it seems it's often off the coast of california but i think elsewhere uh as well that they they do these things and they're like ah look at that you know that might be a new species or or, you know there's a little jellyfish and starfish and various various critters of all sorts the jellies are amazing and they're this one those ones called tinafores ct and you know if they catch them in the right light they're bioluminescing and these like brilliant patterns like really elaborate christmas lights that someone down the street set up or something and you know, with long, wispy arms. And I, yeah, I just think I took invertebrate zoology at University of Alaska Southeast when I first moved here. That was one of the first classes I took with Sherry Timoni. And I think that really, really kind of snapped me into per, the, the perspective of what the invertebrate, you know, family tree looks like and how diverse it is and how unique it is and bizarre it is um, when you compare it to just, you know, boring old vertebrates honestly it's so much larger and i really i recommend anyone taking any course if they're in science taking an invertebrate zoology course because you learn and you see so much and the beauty of taking it here in southeast alaska is that we got to you know we went out in the type pools and we collected a lot of the things that we studied even those little water bears i think we found those in a you know the moss in Auk lake or something right right yeah i've seen i've seen a tardigrade or two uh right tardigrade thank you yeah in in moss collections um, yeah, they show up in there. Yeah, but the there. worms, I mean, the, the amount of worms that are living yeah. in the mud, these beautiful, those... Um, those polychaete worms. Polychaete are, worms, yeah. oh, those are crazy. And they, if you zoom in on their mouth, it looks like something from a sci-fi movie that's going to... Those ones, th- they, th- that, <laughs> that is something that will bite you. Maybe I've been bitten by one of those, actually, now that now that you yeah. mentioned that. I, like I said, I hadn't been bitten by anything, but I think I was bitten by a polychaete worm. Oh, really? I, I picked it up, and some of them have a pretty fierce bite, as it turns out. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. They're... I I don't love worms, but that was one of my favorite sections was the worm section because we got everything in the lab under the microscope, still alive. Those ice cream cone worms, I'm really – I learned all the scientific names. I apologize, but they encase themselves and they make little sand encasings. Mm-hmm. That, and then they when they come out, they have these gold appendages that flicker under the light, and they're amazing. But, of course, you would you need to take one and kind of sit there and hold it and look at it for a long time to notice because it's going to hunker down when you touch it, but – that was really an amazing class. And we use, actually used Aaron Baldwin. His ID book oh, was right. the best yeah. book because it was the most specific for this area. Yeah. That is often a challenge, you know, in figuring out what stuff is. Some folks are happy to go out and just observe and see all the variety and, and just sort of let it wash over. And um, I have an appreciation for that, but I also like to know what things are. Yeah. Uh, that for whatever reason, my my sort of wiring is such that, uh, like I started, all my natural history stuff started with, I like to hike around here and I thought oh I'd maybe like to take pictures while I'm hiking and then oh maybe I'd take pictures of the wildflowers while I'm hiking Mm -hmm. and that all seemed innocent enough but then I was like I started a website I was in graduate school you know elsewhere and so I was like well let's be a way to help stay sort of connected to home and and Uh that kind of thing so I thought I'll put these pictures up on a website well now I need to know what the name is and then label it (laughs) right and as soon as that that basically was like now I'm obsessed with like the names of things and knowing what it is. I, like I don't have to. Like it just isn't possible. Like you're describing some of those some of those uh, 
phytoplankton is like good luck you yeah. know um if they've been described and there's plenty of species that haven't even been described insects and invertebrates uh you know marine organisms terrestrial organisms yeah. and the insects um you know maybe some of these uh have names uh maybe they're names from a different ocean you know a lot of that seems to happen they're like oh it's described in europe and it looks kind of like that so we'll call it that and right turns out polychaete worms i was talking to uh, leslie harris who's a polychaete specialist with um Los Angeles Natural History Museum, I uh-huh, think. Yeah. And and she's like, yeah, a lot of the West Coast polychaetes, you know, if you can find references that have names for them, but they aren't legitimate names uh, because they, they just were applying something from a different ocean. And these are different species. And there is a lot of work that needs to be done. So, oh, interesting. I didn't so, realize that. Yeah, it was they, just kind of that name was adopted because it right, looked like something because, else. Because it looked like something that somebody described from the Atlantic Ocean. And the same thing happened with uh, mushrooms. Um European author, you know, uh, uh, mycologists describe species, and then folks in North America had access to European references, and they they just fit things into where it fit. Mm-hmm. And especially now that they have genetics, um, they they're able to uh, they're able to determine that. Well, turns out they aren't the same, and I know. so yeah, there's a lot of lot of work left to be done genetics can be a really powerful tool like we said but it's kind of a buzzkill when it comes to identifying <laughs> things because well it's like yeah. i mean i studied the pacific oyster which was crossostria gigas for years in my master's and now my friend who's an oyster farmer it was telling me the name i said oh that's not the name she's like no they changed it yeah i don't yeah. even know what it is anymore and yeah. it kind of is you know i i don't i guess my paper still stands it's still going to be called that in my paper but i i wonder how fast all the names are going to change it is it's it's interesting and and they the nice thing is I mean like technically speaking there's there's all the synonymies and stuff and so the the internet is like iNaturalist for example if you type in an old name it'll automatically pop up the new name it's it's in the synonymy so that's been that's good that that's helpful because much like our baseline is set with weather like our baseline gets set with names and those are the ones that you remember most easily and as mm-hmm. they change over time you're like wait which <laughs> which name was it I know it changed but I don't remember and that's I've I've kind of gotten to that point with with quite a few things so. But it's all fun, you know, for me anyway. I, I enjoy getting out and, and seeing the stuff that's around there and trying to put names on it. And I appreciate folks like yourself who doing more in-depth work on particular organisms and, and groups and trying to understand. Because uh, for me, at least, the, the name's kind of a tag. It's a way to, like, now I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, but the more interesting thing is, like, okay, so it's like getting to know the neighbors. Like, I can know all the neighbors and names of the folks in my neighborhood, but... You know, that isn't the same as kind of knowing who they are and being in relationship with them, essentially. Yeah. So I think in the broader sense, that's that's more what I'm interested in. And so it's always fun to talk with folks that are that are doing stuff. And as we wrap up here, anything else you want to mention before we go? I mean, no, I guess not. I should say that I really feel a debt of gratitude to the Science Center for bringing me over to Sitka for the month. I've been here, I have a couple more days, and I've gotten to know, I mean, even the new aquarist over there, Matt, he's practically, a, he's a naturalist too. He knows so much about fish and invertebrates and what things eat, because he has to think about right. how you keep yeah. things in a tank together. And uh, yeah, I've just really enjoyed my time here in Sitka, meeting community members and kind of understanding. There is a a breadth of knowledge in this community that, I think it exists in a lot of communities, but it's visible here because of the size and the interest of everyone who's here. And it's really been a treat to get to know people. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Courtney Hart, scientist in residence fellow at the Sitka Sound Science Center and PhD student at the University of Alaska 
uh, School of Fisheries. I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.